What's going on? What's going on? How's everybody doing today? Hope everybody's having a great Sunday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You already know. I mean, literally, continue to stay safe out there and uh, get some good food in and watch the game. Anybody will probably hear me say this a million times, but, you know, the Bengals and the Rams, that sounds like just an amazing game. Anything's better than Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, or quite frankly, the entire Dallas franchise. So that's better. Um, You know, so anybody except those people, that's a game. Um, But I hope y'all remember to stay safe, have fun, have a good time. So what's everybody doing on this Valentine's Day? I I mean, for real, like, what is everybody doing on Valentine's Day? Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's an okay holiday, even though a brother be staying single. But still, I I mean, everyone's going out and buying their significant other chocolates to rings to even exotic vacations. Like, ladies and gentlemen, I got one question for y'all. Who's about to take me on an exotic vacation? A vacation? Who? Who? Somebody, please. I mean, I'm out here playing careless whispers. And everybody else going on exotic vacations. Like, who's about to take me on an exotic vacation? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, let me run down what I'm going to be doing on my Monday. I'm going to run down for you. So in the afternoon, in between classes, you already know what I'm about to do. I'm about to get my usual three tacos, quesadillas, soft shell taco, and a burrito from Taco Bell. Already amazing. Already amazing. But then it gets better. In the evening, I'm going to have me a reservation. I'm going to take my ass to Olive Garden. Yeah, I mean, that might be a step down, maybe two steps down. Shoot the whole floor down from exotic uh, Italian food. But, you know, can't beat that. You can't beat that. All right. I'm tired about my pity party. I'm sorry. I know it's a. I know I'm giving little sob stories like this. Everybody hates Chris. But, hey, on the good news, I hope y'all have fun on your Valentine's Day. Make sure you, you treat your significant other with all the lovely items on this Valentine's Day. Also, if you're not doing anything in the evening, y'all want to kick off your Valentine's Day, come to the Black Excellence Series. Monday, 7 p.m., that's when it begins. You know, I know a lot of people that are putting this event together, you know, from student government. You know, they're having their first Black Empowerment panel. It's really cool. You know, you got Dr. Claire Small. You got Richard, Mr. Richard Potter. You got Sandra Baptist. You got Chance Crockett. It's about to be lit. And then your boy's moderating. So that's even fun, too. So make sure that y'all pull up. Make sure y'all come out. Show some support. It's going to be over a span of two weeks. The dates have already been posted on social media, so make sure y'all check it around. But it's about to be lit. Y'all already know. So, I had to put that out there. Um, once again, I want to thank each and every one of y'all for continuing to tune in. I can't do this without y'all. Like, I really can't. Like, I feel as though we really are making this podcast just so much more interesting. Like, literally, like, I'm so excited doing these podcasts. And so... Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I bumped it up to 12 p.m. You know, so this episode should update within, honestly, it should be done around um, 11.45 in terms of uploading. So we good, we good, we good. So that's pretty exciting. So on to our topic, on to our topic of tea and white fragility. (laughs) Y'all like what I did there. These rhymes, good Lord. So... I want to make something very clear. When I'm talking about white fragility, y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. The whole dismissal, deferral, um, denial, frustration when it comes to, again, talking about the experiences, both the perseverance and dedication, but also the trauma and fatigue of the black diaspora. And when 
again, is like that's being dismissed by white people. And I don't want to just limit it to white people because you also have people of color who are are caught in this mindset that this whole white fragility attaches to, again, the dismissal of, you know, the black diaspora. And I have one simple message for that. Accept the fact that you need to be vulnerable. I, I mean, who am I to tell you how to live your life? But don't sit here and try to paint yourself as a supporter of Black Lives Matter. You put it in your little bio. You put it on your little sticker on Tinder. <laughs> yeah, I'm deleting Tinder because I haven't been getting any matches, but I don't care. Um, or, you know, all the other ways in which, you know, you try to give lip service to your support of the Black Diaspora. But then again, going back to last episode, you don't match your actions to your words and you don't pull up. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. That was heavy on my chest. But part of the reason why I really wanted to do this episode this week in particular is for two reasons. One, like, we, and it's something that I've learned. I'm not saying that I created this or coined this, but I was explained to it that Black History Month really is the opportunity for black people to scrub off the fatigue and the frustration and the, the, the anger that we continue to hold. And I'm not saying anger in like a stereotypical connotation. I'm saying it in a lens where Again, we go through all these hurdles and all these obstacles to really work hard and ensure that, you know, we are are quite frankly taken seriously. But then two, you know, again, so that we don't lose a beat, so we don't lose focus, because especially going at a predominantly white institution like Salisbury, you know, it's quite easy for people to group you as the angry black people. And it's not even when you are angry necessarily, it's quite frankly, when you are educated, informed, and engaged on the matters that's going on on this campus or even on the shore. And that's a threat because knowledge is power and power leads to threats. And, you know, we all know that there's a historical paper trail of white people taking threat when it comes to black people exercising such power, when it comes to voting, when it comes to mobilizing, when it comes to looking out for the community and mutual aid, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But the whole point is, again, to show and to illustrate that we have to continue to work twice as hard just to maintain an image that, again, we've already looked at in a negative connotation as because we're automatically, again, the angry black people when that's not the case. And that's frustrating. That can be tiring. Going back to episode one, and I'm going to make sure that I'm stacking the episodes so that we're incorporating all the elements. But that fatigue of going through the daily motions of being black. Because again, that's not something you can hide. Not saying you can't be proud of it because you absolutely have every right to be proud of being black and who you are because blackness is the exact contribution that has built this nation, our blackness. You know, and don't be ashamed of that. Don't be proud of that. But at the same token, you know, it is hard. I can understand that. It is hard because it's like, again, you have to keep your composure even when people are doing the dumbest things or saying the the worst things ever when it comes to, again, when they say they value black lives, but then they turn around and do all these horrific things. You know, it's like it's like a it's like a mind erase. It really is. And then when you when you address them on it, it's like, again, that that wall of white fragility really starts to kick in and it's like they shut down. They dismiss it. They get frustrated. They're like, or I'll give you a better one. I'll give you an example. And I'm not giving any names. And this is not to pick on anybody. But, you know, they'll always give the story about how they corrected their significant other's parents for being racist. Like, they want the Congressional Medal of Freedom. Like, okay, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. Am I wrong? I mean, you don't, you shouldn't have to get a medal for, again, correcting people in... The, the the social advocacy that you're bringing to the table. It's either you're about it or you're not. And, you know, 
I'm not trying to say that in a way where it's only two sides. No, I'm not saying that at all. But it starts by being vulnerable. And being vulnerable means that you're gonna have to you're gonna have to really listen to the the trauma, but then also the perseverance and dedication of the black diaspora. Because again, when you deny, when you don't match your actions to your words and you contradict yourself, then it really adds more fatigue to people, especially people of color. And in addition to that, you know, again, it ties into performative activism because it's like you're giving a performance to show that you've done something. But then when it comes to actually getting in the streets and putting in the work to ensure that we're breaking down cultures and systems that actively oppress the black diaspora and its intersectionality, of course, you're nowhere to be found. You can't do that. You can't do that. And I'm not trying to point people out. I really don't want to do that because, again, when and you guys probably saw this on my Instagram post where I was asking for all those tea flavors and they were really interested. Don't get me wrong. The Earl Grey, the chai, even though chai confuses me sometimes, the uh, green tea, you know, the whole point of that, again, when they go low, you go high, because one thing that you'll find is through white fragility, whenever we go. And again, going back to the notion of power, when people are educated, informed and empowered to make a change, you know, when people feel threatened on that notion, They'll try to go for the one thing that necessarily isn't through policy. They'll go through character. So they'll try to make you as a villain. They'll try to find every little thing on you to put dirt on you and make you seem like, you know, you're the worst person ever or you're the villain in the story and you're causing all the issues. Of course, the angry black people that are causing all the issues. I can't tell you how many times this happened to me at this institution. And it's a shame because it's not just the administration to a certain capacity. It's not just the faculty to a certain capacity or staff. It's students. And again, these are very, and I I don't mean to pick on students, but it's the very students that claim to value diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, But one thing that I've learned in life, you reap what you sow. So, you know, all you can do is continue to pray for them. And again, when they go low, you go high. Because again, that's, 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 that's the determination and willpower of our diaspora. And you know, it's interesting. I saw a Facebook post and one of my friends posted it. Um, I forgot who posted it. It was, a, it was either Facebook or it was Instagram, excuse me. It was Instagram. And the whole point of the post was to reflect, again, a timeline from when the first slave got to the Americas, the New World, and how they continued to provide with what little they had. Because, again, their history, their culture, their livelihoods have been stripped from them. And a term of slavery has been placed upon them. Because, again, I think people are so quick... Whenever they talk about slavery, they'll just say, oh, well, the slaves that have done this. And, and see, I'm starting to look at it from a new perspective. Again, we're so, put, we're so quick to put the notion of slaves on the table when in reality it's more enslaved. Because, again, they weren't born, well, until, of course, you had people that were, were born into slavery, literally. But, you know, you had the people that were brought over here that were doctors, that were, you know, um, um, economists, that were traders that were in the military, all these different entities that were put into bondage. And so, you know, I'm thinking about it from a new perspective. Now, granted, granted, I'm nowhere near perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But again, the whole point of that post was to show that each generation, even though they have been stripped, stripped of everything, they still were able to provide a foundation for new generations to fight for more for the next generation, to ensure that we have what we need to go forward. You know, I, I cannot be where I am today without my ancestors because my ancestors, 
they sacrifice so much for me to ensure that I can do the things that I can do, but not just to enjoy it. No. So I can fight for the next generation to have more because, again, we as a people have been stripped of so much. Uh, I know what I said was a little wonky, um, but ultimately, again, um, we need to remember something. It's in our DNA. Black excellence is in our DNA. It really is. You know, that's something that I was I was taught. It's in our DNA. And, you know, we need to do a better job of ensuring that we're plugging into our communities and reminding people of that so they can continue to do the things that they want to do to provide for the next generation. And it's just a shame because, you know, going back to episode one, a lot of people are going through that fatigue, that burnout. And it's it's hard to really combat because, again, especially when you're going to a PWI, there's only but so many of you. And it's like, who do you go to? Who do you talk to? Like me personally, I really struggle I really struggle with the term white fragility because, again, it burns my battery out so much when I have to combat so much of it. And it's not to say that things are automatically hostile. No. But again, you have to work twice as hard so you don't crack. So you don't pop off because if you pop off well, for me, when I pop off, that's it. That's game over. But I can't let that happen because, again, that would automatically betray me as the villain. That would automatically betray me as the angry black man. And I feel as though a lot of people look to me for, you know, that 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 composure. And I feel as though like it'd be just it, it would just be a disservice if I let it slip for a moment. And so I'm really trying my hardest, but it, it does a lot on your mental health. And that's why I'm always trying to push you guys, make sure that you protect your mental health at all costs. Like, make sure you take care of yourself. Like, literally, this weekend, I did absolutely nothing. And that was just my way to kind of just scrub off the fatigue, the frustration, anger. Because, you know, between all of us, I'm, I'm still, I'm angry. I don't know how to, I don't really know how to process that. Because, you know, I feel alone out here. And it's not to say that y'all aren't here with me. Y'all are here with me. Don't get me wrong. But I I feel like I can only talk to so many people about the real, my real feelings because honestly, it's so much wear and tear. I just don't know what to do. I I really don't. Um, like it was funny because yesterday on our Instagram live, I, I did an Instagram live at like two a.m. and <laughs> boy, we talk about a lot of stuff. It, it went from like talking about what's on Hulu to that turned into a whole dialogue about you know how black people are continuing to be. Uh, uh, dismissed and, and negated through public policy, through our schools, through Ocean City. Like, we were just talking about it all. And one thing that uh, one of my friends was very shocked on, because I told her this experience, and this is the first time I'm sharing it with y'all, but the how many times I've been called, how many times I've been called a nigger at SU and in Salisbury? Like, literally, it, it's been so many times. Like, it's hard to really process that because, you know, again, I'm here to get a degree or degrees. Actually, I'm getting two. I'm getting two degrees, by the way. They, they ain't playing with me. I'm getting these two degrees. But uh, how do you really focus and continue to keep that composure when that's still in your ear? Now, you know, I look at it from two different perspectives. One, you know, I get it. Generations before me have endured that and they continue to utilize that as their motive to continue to lay the foundation for the next generation. I get that. But at the same token, I'm still human. I still have limits. And the question that I have to ask myself all the time is, what can I do to really combat that realistically? And, you know, 
and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer, but what I do know is I'm going to continue to fight and give everything that I got to ensure that students that are coming here that are black and brown of intersectional groups feel included here and feel like they have a home here, a home away from home, even though that home away from home is really getting taken right now. And so with that example that I just gave y'all, and I'll give you the most recent one, actually. I remember I was walking, walking one of my friends home from, uh, we went to a warehouse. <laughs> and that's another story for another time in terms of, um, you know, why me going to warehouse? Dorian, you party? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a few. But uh, when I was walking him home, you know, the, it was a white truck. And the only reason why I know they were students is because I saw their, their tags and I saw a license plate. So, you know, I mean, unless they're alumni, I don't know, but they look like a bunch of, you know, 18 to 21 year old white boys and they drove by and, you know, um, forget my language, forget my language. But, you know, they drove by and they um, screamed out the window, oh, bitch, nigger. And, and so in my mind, I'm just like, what? Like, hold up, like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. And I had to really think to myself, I'm like, should I really get angry? Or should I apply that anger into my advocacy? Of course, I'm applying my anger to my advocacy. Don't get me wrong. But again, how do you process that personally? How do you really articulate that to your mother, to your father? How do you do that? I mean, you know, because I'm going to be completely frank with y'all. Like, my family, as much as they sometimes they want to deny it, and I love them to death, don't get me wrong. But, like, I really did feel like, you know, I was looked at a little bit negatively when I said I was going to Salisbury because they were just, like, the Eastern Shore. Like, really? Like, and I felt like I had some pressure when it comes, when it came to, like, the school that I go to. Like, you know, because I got accepted to Morehouse. I could have went to an HBC if I wanted to. I could have. But I didn't. I, I just didn't. I chose Salisbury because I really felt like I can grow here. And I would never take that experience back. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, part of what I signed up for is, again, like really getting a front row seat when it comes to white fragility and how that plays out. Now, granted, you know, that example, of course, that was the reality of, again, being in America and being black in America, a black male in America. But, you know, going back to that other example I talked about when it came to like, it's like getting a medal for correcting somebody. It's like, that's something you should automatically do. That still is ingrained within white fragility. Because think about it. I mean, why are you getting corrected or why are you getting a medal for doing what you're supposed to do? Why? I'll give you another example. So one thing to know about Salisbury is um, after 40 years, we were able to get our general education model. So all the general ed requirements reformed, which is great. And again, that's black excellence for y'all because that was led by not only faculty, but students. So black excellence at its finest. Remember that. Keep that in your back pocket. But, you know, one thing that one conversation that I had with some uh, faculty members and some of them were from the biology department, you know, they said, well, how can I integrate uh, black? And again, they automatically jumped when we talked about a diversity and inclusion model. And and forgive me. So there's multiple components that are supposed to go into this new model. And one of them is diversity and inclusion. So they jumped to the notion, well, how can I include black people within my 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 curriculum? Like, you know, it's a science class. We don't talk about that stuff. And so I looked at the professor and I said, well, why not? <laughs> I mean, literally, like, why not? And, you know, of course, that's why fragility starts kicking in. So the whole dismissiveness starts to really kick in. And they're like, what do you mean, why not? Like, it's a science class. We're talking about, you know, biology. So, you know, again, 
there's a whole list of things that you can be talking about when it comes to biology. Um, because again, people still have the mindset and, you know, a big reason is because a lot of these, these local and state governments are trying to wipe away black history. For example, plasma. So when you get your blood drawn, uh, blood plasma, even the red cross, did you know that that was that whole technique and that whole scientific breakthrough was invented by a black man? Did you? Did you? Charles Richard Drew? Anybody? No? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, literally, like, I remember when I was taking Bio 101 my spring semester year, my spring semester of freshman year, and we talked about plasma and blood and the whole process when it comes to um, donating blood and how that whole process, how it's stored. And not once did they talk about that individual, that, that man. Nope. No, no, they didn't talk about it. And it's just like, again, that is a great way for you to integrate diversity and inclusion because, again, you're reflecting the notion that I can see, for me as a black man, I can see myself in the book. I can see myself in the slides. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not expecting you to talk about, I'm not expecting you to talk about the Civil War in biology class. No, I'm not expecting you to do that. You can, because theoretically, a lot of scientific breakthroughs came from that. You can. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's how you got the nurse corps, which, again, black women were heavily involved in for the Civil War. But still, I, I mean, like, you know, I'm not expecting you to give all that. But again, can I see myself in it? Because all I see is white people. And I mean, you know, when you say that, when they have these these whole like, let's have an open dialogue about how we feel. And then you always have professors and students that turn off. When people say that, again, the one or two black people that are in the room, literally the Everybody Hates Chris scenario, which for those of you who have not watched Everybody Hates Chris and you're trying to be an educator, and I've told this to one of my friends, please watch a, at least one season of Everybody Hates Chris. Because although it's supposed to be funny, it's also very serious. Chris Rock, he designed it a certain way. But, you know, it makes no sense. I, I mean, it really makes no sense. It really is a contradiction to what an institution of higher learning is. And you know what I call that? I call that an institution of selective learning. You know, I've used that term many times. And that, I, I, I don't know if anybody else has utilized it, but I'm, I'm coining it. I'm coining it. But we're not an institution of selective learning. We're not selecting what we learn. No, we can't do that because then that takes away from going to a university. Because then at that point, I can just go online and Google. At that point, shoot. And that's what a lot of people are doing in this country. But again, if we claim to be an institution of higher learning, what are we doing to accept the fact that it is okay to be vulnerable? And that's not just pertaining to white fragility. I think it spams because, again, it's such an intersectional basis. We as humans are intersectional ourselves. So if that's the case, we need to accept the fact that we're going to be vulnerable. That's A-OK. But if you're so quick to dismiss and you're so quick to get frustrated when it comes to the dialogue of race itself, then you can't be preaching institutions of higher learning. You can't promote them. You're promoting the selectiveness. Are you not? Seriously. I, I mean, I mean I'm, I'll give you another example. I'll give you another example. So I took a public policy class. Um, for those of you who don't know, do not know, uh, I'm a double major of political science and international studies. But for those of you who are just interested in how public policy works, so all the laws that you get, how the processes work, you know, if you want to talk about Obamacare and how Obamacare really came about, just giving examples at this point, take a public policy class in the political science department. You can take it as a general ed. I'm sure you can. 
Um, they offered both in the fall and the spring. Good professors. But I remember there was one dude. And, and see, here's the irony. Because political science is in the Fulton School, the liberal arts school. We have the class. I think the class was Tuesdays and Thursdays in Purdue. Yeah, it was in Purdue. I do remember that. It was in Purdue. And Purdue is the business school. So I'm not saying I'm not saying Purdue is is um is um what's it called snobby rich people. I'm not saying that even though you know they they got some money they got some bread, but I will say, you know again it's very heavily heavily involved in the whole notion of uh, the classical liberal uh, model. Not not liberal in terms of demo- uh, in terms of Democrats. No, not liberal in terms of that. No, liberal in terms of the whole like free market. You know, John Locke, life, liberty, pursuit of property, all that wealth of nations, like all that stuff. I'm not saying that that's what how they think. I'm not saying that, but that's a huge component of, again, Purdue. I keep hearing that over and over and over again. Now, the reason why I say that is this. We were talking about how uh, poverty plays a role in, again, the diaspora how that plays a role in, in how systemic oppression continues to, to circulate through systems and governments and cultures and communities. And I forgot, I forgot what we were reading, but we were talking about how, you know, if you're making minimum wage and you're a person of color, it's like you're already battling through that in addition to, again, the inequities and the lack of access when it comes to the ballot, when it comes to, you know, um, getting moved off your property in the process of gentrification, all these other components and how they all intersect to make up uh, the model of capitalism. Not saying capitalism is uh, is um, to be removed necessarily, but again, how that model really breaks down in the system of America itself. And it's interesting because one of the guys in the class, he already said he was a Purdue student. And it's not to shake shots at him. But the first thing that came out of his mouth when we started talking about that well, why don't they just move somewhere else? <laughs> I know that rings a bell from uh, last forum. <laughs> For those of you who know what I'm talking about. But everybody turned to the back of the classroom. Everybody was like, oh, yeah, if it was that easy, we could just pick up our stuff and move right now. Yeah, with my with my $7.25 an hour wage. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Pick up my stuff and go somewhere else. Better yet, man, if I could, if I could just, uh, you know... Wave a magic wand, maybe I can get a brand new car too while I'm at it. I can pick up my bootstraps and continue to move forward and buy a house and have a little white picket fence and you know, yeah, like literally, you know, the, that mindset. And of course, I'm not saying that, you know, again, he is automatically expected to know, but that's common sense. It's like if you're talking about these measures and we've been talking about it for the last month and a half, why is that the one thing that comes out of your head? But when I asked him that, because I, I talked to him on the side about that, he was automatically quick to say, oh, well, maybe it's just because everything's going on campus, everybody's upset. Really? Really? Because everything has to be heated in order for that dialogue to come up. Really? I mean, you tell me. You tell me, guys. But I do know one thing, again, that has everything to do with white fragility, because again, dismissal, and frustration. But of course, you know, when black people, you know, when black people continue to go through the fatigue, they go through the ringer, and, you know, they have to keep their composure, and, you know, they're automatically labeled as the angry black people, then it's automatically, like, game over, you know? 
You know, it's just angry black people. You know, it's it's funny because one thing that I had to learn over the last couple of weeks is again, and I said this before earlier: when they go low, you go high. People have really been trying to find every little thing, and even if it's not true, every little thing to put dirt on your character. And for me, I think what I struggled with so much is the fact that people would stoop so low to do those things. But it's like, do they really believe that? Do they really believe that what they're doing is wrong? What they're doing is misinformation. What they're doing is, you know, exactly what has been done to our peoples for generations. I have to ask myself that sometimes. I really do. Because how I look at it, is it insecurity through white fragility? Or is it you feel feared? You feel fear and challenge through white fragility. Which one? Of course, it's, of course, it's the very people that put, you know, Black Lives Matter on their bios, their little BLMs in there. That, oh, I, stand with, I stand in solidarity with y'all. Hate has no home here. Do you really? Do you really? I mean, and see, we got to be careful here because what we don't want to do is we don't want to throw a little a little basket or a little little um a curtain around white fragility and label it for broad things like hate. Because quite frankly, I mean, hate. I think hate has really been worn out because that's like the political answer. Like I feel like hate is being used as such a political answer to try to cover up the isms, the racism, the 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 sexism, the ableism homophobia, they try to, xenophobia, like, they're trying to cover all those elements up when, in the, in this whole basket of hate. And don't get me wrong, it's not always bad to use, to use, you know, it's hate, people are promoting hate, but remember something, when you're talking about hate itself, you really need to expand upon how hate looks like, what hate looks like, excuse me, from an intersectional lens, so that you can apply it to a series of different groups so that they can recognize that we have a common a common adversary when it comes to oppression. And the adversary is not other peoples necessarily. It's cultures and ideals and structures of oppression. Yes, of course, it's by the hands of people. But, you know, quite frankly, again, how can we ensure that we can gather our allies, give them the tools and resources that they need to continue to fight the good fight with alongside us. Because again, you know, I personally believe it. I'm I'm no I'm not saying what I'm saying is perfect. I'm not saying that we can, you know, everybody has different mindsets to this, everybody has different theories. Shoot, there might be different mindsets and theories that are better than what I'm talking about. But what I do know is again, when people come together as a collective and they start to see the patterns and the structures that are used to keep people in submission. That's how you really start to get change when it comes to public policy, when it comes to education, when it comes to, again, the cultures that we've continued to let stand by that have continued to oppress people through white fragility, of course. You know, you know, I feel as though going into my last semester at Salisbury, I always look back and I'm just like, man. What could I have done differently? Could I have just played out transferred? 
could I have, um, uh, I don't know, join a, join a sports team? Could I go party more? No. Honestly, no. I don't regret anything that I've done. Because I feel like what I've done, I can be proud of and say, hey, me alongside other students did something here. And see, it's very important going back to our other episodes about leaving a paper trail. Because paper trail really does define the moment in which people have come together to support one another. And to bring change to our communities and to our, our schools and to our nation. But, again, that requires us to be vulnerable. But, again, we need to accept the fact that white fragility exists. Because it really does. It really does. It shows on a daily basis. I I gave y'all like plenty of examples. And I have plenty, plenty more. And I'm sure y'all got plenty, plenty more. So I want to make sure that I shift into the question section. So first off, the first one isn't a question. But um, Muhammad, special shout out to you, man. He said that the first two episodes were amazing. So this one going forward is going to be amazing as well. I definitely appreciate that. And tune in next week, guys, for the next episode. It's going to be a collab between myself and Muhammad. Topic's coming out soon. But it's going to be lit. I want y'all to know that right now. It's going to be lit. So definitely tune in for that. Yeah. Now, to the questions. Question one. And and I want to make sure, thank y'all for, for putting these questions in. I was a little scared because I was like, I wonder if people are going to put it in for this type of topic. Like, I wonder what type of questions they're going to put in because, you know, when you hear white fragility, it's like, ooh, especially if you go to Salisbury, ooh, you know. But first question. Okay, so when I was still in Salisbury, I remember we talked after you left, you lost the SJ elections. Do you believe white fragility works, worked against you? So, when I first read this question, I'm, I'm going to assume, because like in our dialogues that we had, and you know who you are, but um, we talked about how, you know, more so what I was going to do after SJ. So, um, for those of you who do not, do not know, way back when, I was involved in the student government. Um, don't get me wrong, like, like I said in previous episodes, that literally, I feel like SJ has given me everything that I've needed to really be the person that I am today especially when it comes to activism and utilizing the structure and analyzing the structure to bring change to a structure because what people fail to understand and people get this mixed up all the time, especially the current people there, is um, in order to change a system or in order to to really make change within a system, you need to know how the system works. That's basic information, basic one-on-one. So with that said, um, I ran for president once, lost, ran for president a second time, lost again. That's a-okay. Um, you know, they were, they were good campaigns. I really learned a lot, especially when it came to campaigning, but then also, uh, you know, I, again, I can turn around and say I did something. I, I, I contributed to a movement when it came to the elections. Now to your question about like, do you think white fragility had things to play with it? Like, I mean, yes, I, I think yes. In simple terms. I mean, I, I think that when you talk about white fragility, again, when, when you see a candidate of color, Knowing that you're one of the only candidates of color in that category, your mindset's going to be like, oh, here comes the person that's going to talk about the black people issues. The black people issues. Got the little handkerchief on with the black people issues. But, you know, I do think it does. Um, Don't get me wrong. I think that the people that I ran against, they ran really good campaigns. So, like, you know, I'm not trying to give you any political answer, but, you know, in simple text, yes, I think it does. Um, because whenever I would walk up to people, I would talk about my campaign. I hand out brochures. I did those videos. Uh, and you, you, you were very crucial to me doing those videos. Um, especially when you would like watch over before I would post it, you know, people, again, when you talk about white fragility, they would turn off and get dismissed. 
they would dismiss when you talk about, let's say, for example, um, how multicultural student services was going. Like, they would automatically plug out because they were like, oh, well, what does that have to do with me, you know? And on top of that, it's like, well, you know, we have equality here. Uh, or for the most part, people would just not know, like, because they literally would not know what's going on on campus. Again, that's still a form of, of um, a lack of access to the ballot. So um, to answer your question, yes. Um, oh, okay. So going back to what I said earlier, I think I said it. Um, would I date a white girl? Um, so ultimately, I'm going I'm to answer it like it is. This is just 100% me. So I don't care. I don't really care about your background too much. Like, I really don't. Um, and I know that's, like, such a textbook answer. But I'm just looking for somebody who's going to give me the time of day and is actually going to, like, you know, get to know me. I get to know them. And I really don't care what your background is, really. As long as you ain't going to cut me or you ain't going to um, take my kidneys or anything like that, we're, we'll be all good. <laughs> but in all seriousness, no, I don't, I don't really I don't really have a, a preference like that. I really don't. Um as long as you have a good heart and you, you're funny. No, that's the most important thing. That is my preference. If you're funny. If you're funny, that's automatically a plus three. I'm just saying. Plus three. But that doesn't include the application fee, the background check, all that good stuff. Just to make sure, again, you don't steal my kidney. Um, yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. Most definitely. But that was the last question. I want to thank y'all for tuning in. Um, this should upload by 12 p.m., if not 12.05, but it's a lot better than the last few episodes. The last few episodes took a long time to upload. But again, remember one thing. When we talk about white fragility with tea, especially with our tea time, that is. Remember this one thing. When they go low, you go high. And of course, that rhymed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to rhyme, but... Goodbye. <laughs> you like what I did there. <laughs> yeah, I should be a poet. Good Lord. No, I couldn't be a poet. Uh, that, that's not in my pay race. I'm not even getting paid to do this. Apparently, you can't get paid to do this, but nah, it's not about the money. I'm having fun with y'all. That's all that matters. Uh, also, uh, oh, by the way, um, if you are uh, feeling bad for me when it came to the Valentine's date, if you want, you can uh, cash out me a firm amount of money. And uh, that'd be my Valentine's Day present. My cash app is Dorian Rogers nine one eight six. Again, my name is my cash app is Dorian Rogers nine one eight six. If you want to donate to the Valentine's Day fund, but again, have fun, stay safe, and remember one thing: Black excellence starts with us. <laughs>